Hey guys, I wanted to pop in to give you a quick update before the episode. If you are a Patreon subscriber, you may have seen an announcement that we have some exciting changes that are scheduled to be happening very soon. And that is all to be announced, but what I can tell you right now is that starting next week, Mother May I Sleep With Podcast is going to be combined with all of the current content that you're privy to. So we'll all be under one big happy roof. I'm really excited about that. It also means that if you already pledged, you'll be getting ad-free episodes of Mother May I Sleep With Podcast, which is very exciting. So our temporary Patreon URL is patreon.com slash v2 coming soon. That is patreon.com slash v2 coming soon. Tanks, bye. You guys, welcome to episode 119 of The Smush Room, or 18, but I think it's 19. The podcast that deep dives on the well-known and more importantly, not so well-known hookups of your favorite reality television starlets. It's me, Troy Mahahi, and I can't believe we're doing this, but we're doing it. And you know what we're doing because you've already read the description, you've read the title, um, you know what's happening. We are finally doing the goddamn thing. We're doing it. It's happening today. The most requested by far episode of this podcast since the day I started recording, we are covering Beyonce Knowles and Jay-Z. And I've got to tell you, I'm actually very fucking excited. I think that this feels like the right time to do it. I have a little bit more confidence in my ability to do this episode now. I can definitely tell you that like before, um, before even doing that Britney and Justin three-part thing, like I don't know if I would have been able to do this because now I know that it works to split the episodes up like that if I need to, when there's like just so much information that it's impossible. So this is going to be a three-part episode um maybe even four like this may just be a full-blown fucking Beyonce week like we may just really give the people what they want and go for it (laughs) you know what I mean we may just go for it um because obviously I really want to talk about Beyonce I want to talk about Destiny's Child and all the things and I want to talk about Jay-Z and all his things and I want to talk about them as a couple but I also don't even know if a single hour long episode is enough to cover all of the culture that Jay-Z and Beyonce have given us over the years. I mean, we could talk about Lemonade for an hour alone. Like, you know, I'm going to fucking lose my shit talking about that. So I'm really, I'm really, really excited to do this. Um, yeah, I mean, I, don't, I, I, I just don't think that I could have done this any justice, uh, like a month or so ago, even. So I guess we can just go ahead and get right into it. Um, You've obviously waited long enough. So Beyonce and Jay-Z are said to have started dating in summer of 2002. And according to Beyonce, they met when she turned 18, but started dating when she was 19, which I don't know if I believe. Um, They got engaged in December of 2007 and they got married that following April. Uh, Jay and Beyonce are obviously one of, if not the most powerful couple I've probably ever done on this podcast. Like, There's no comparison between this relationship and any other relationship I've covered, obviously. Um, I mean, I guess Tara Reid and Carson Daly are a close second as far as American royalty, but I don't know. This is is like a very big deal. And I think the thing that makes them even more interesting is like when you compare 
who they are now to who they used to be, it's really fascinating because I can tell you I've gone back at this point and watched I've watched two BR Destiny's Child documentaries. I've watched a million interviews. I watched all their old music videos. And Beyonce was just so open and raw with the public. Like Beyonce used to do talk shows and interviews and she was a human person. She wasn't just like this, this like entity. You know what I mean? She was a human being. And I miss that like time period in her career. Um, I miss her giving shady interviews and just being like funny and being cool and being herself because I love Beyonce's personality. And it, I, it makes me sad that it's been so long now since we've seen her be able to just like be totally free on something. But I do believe that Jay-Z and Beyonce are a testament to the old school showbiz mantra of like, you are whoever you present yourself to be. They're basically, they really are American royalty at this point because they put themselves on that pedestal and they wanted us to believe that. And now we do believe it. And there are no if, ands, or buts about it. There are no questions asked. And if you have any questions, you can keep them to yourself. Otherwise, a swarm of very hate-filled teenagers are going to swarm your social media and tell you how they want you to kill yourself. Which brings me to my next point. I feel like I should say this before we start this episode, that this is going to be just as much of a celebration of Beyonce and Jay-Z as it is an examining of their highs and lows. Do you know what I mean? I'm not going to treat this episode any different than I would any episode that we've done in the past simply based on the fact that they're Beyonce and Jay-Z. And for some reason, Americans just prefer that you just do not, you just don't say anything negative about Beyonce at all. And I think that that's insane. And to be honest with you, I mean, I feel like that kind of cheapens Beyonce's legacy. Like she's done so much and she's given us so much, so much. And to not be able to like critique it or debate it just feels kind of boring. It's like everything Beyonce does is just perfect. And like, that's just what it is. Like, who are we? What is this? A Kim Jong-un episode? Like, who are we talking about? But go ahead and (laughs) pull up a blanket, grab something deep fried and like, really, let's lean in. We're really going to do this right now. I'm so excited. I'm just beyond. I'm beyond words. Um. Beyonce was born into a pretty ideal financial situation. Her father, Matthew Knowles, who you all know, was in executive medical sales at Xerox. So he basically sold these like multi-million dollar pieces of equipment to companies. And he was making six figures by the time Beyonce was born. So um, they were always rich. And he was also the number one salesperson in the country uh, and his company for years before she was even born. Um Tina actually gave a uh, interview to Rolling Stone in 2004 that I have a lot of quotes from where she said, we lived in a house the same size as the one that we do now in a neighborhood just as nice as the one that we live in now. Just to really hammer home that like we're really rich now, but we've always been pretty wealthy. And Beyonce's mom, speaking of, was a hairstylist and seamstress who owned a beauty shop in Houston called Headliners, which is where Beyonce and her sister and all the girls in her group basically grew up. They were there every day, all day, just hanging out or performing. Tina also said in that interview, um, she got a lot of influence from my clients, Tina says. We catered to the professional woman. 
So we had judges and attorneys, and I really credit that for her having that drive and ambition. She had a, a lot of really great women around her who inspired her to work hard and do great things. And like, aside from the fact that Beyonce doesn't come from like a podunk family, her origin story is that of most of the people she grew up in the industry with that I've covered on this podcast before, where, you know, like her first time on stage was at a school talent show. She was seven years old. Like the, you know, like the, the American dream, like a uh, origin story. Her dance teacher, uh, Mrs. Darlette Johnson, uh, convinced her to join specifically because she was so shy and introverted and, you know, she was bullied really badly. According to everything I've read, uh, she had a really, really hard time in elementary school, which, to be honest with you, doesn't really come as a major surprise to me because she is the epitome of what it means to be a beautiful, pretty, light-skinned black girl and all the baggage that comes along with that when you're young and trying to fit in. And, you know, I think colorism is the thing that, like, I feel like white people are just starting to sort of come around to understanding, but it's this is, like, very classic case. Like, Beyonce was not only light-skinned, but she was gorgeous, and she had this, like, sandy, blonde, brown hair that cascaded down her back, and her family was wealthy, and she was a child of pageantry. Like... She was set up to be the girl who gets her ponytail cut off in school by some jealous bitch. You know what I mean? Just for the hell of it. And actually, in her VH1 Driven episode, Tina tell, told this, what was supposed to be a, a sad story, but it fucking made me belly laugh, where she says that she went to the school and she saw all these girls in the playground and they were girls that she knew to be like bullies. They were bullying Beyonce. So she went up to them and she was like, hey, like, why don't you guys like my daughter? And one of them turned to her and said, I just don't like her. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't know that I went to school with Beyonce. Um, but another side note, I also speaking of Darlette Johnson, I pictured Darlette Johnson to be the kind of woman that you hug when you're little and your entire head just disappears inside her giant bust. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you, you feel like just soft, plush, motherly, fantasy when you hug her I don't know there's something about the name Darlette Johnson that I'm like oh yeah she's a woman that I would have attached myself to as a kid in an unhealthy way you guys I want to talk to you about something important if you know me then you know that I'm pretty unapologetic about the fact that I champion women I was raised by women I've only ever really lived with women and I'm surrounded by what I would consider to be strong female energy for a majority of my day which is why I feel compelled to talk to you about Lola. Lola is a female-founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, liners, and all-natural cleansing wipes. They ask themselves, if we care about the ingredients in the food we eat and the beauty products we use, then why shouldn't the same be true for feminine care products? Unlike other major brands, Lola products are 100% natural and easy to feel good about. There's no BS, no mystery fibers, or doubts about what's going on in your body. Plus, Lola products come in a simple, customizable subscription. Lola will deliver exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. In addition to Lola being a female-founded company that offers a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, and liners, they now offer sex products too. Sex by Lola is a line of gynecologist-approved sexual health and wellness products, lubricated condoms, personal lubricant, and cleansing wipes designed first and foremost for women. All products are stripped of unnecessary, irritating additives and deliver the sensation and reliability women expect and deserve. Sex by Lola is the next step in the mission to becoming the first lifelong brand for women's bodies. Until now, women have only been offered products aggressively marketed towards men and their desires, 
But what about your needs, girls? At Lola, women come first. You should be empowered to make decisions about your sex life. Lola's ultra-thin lubricated condoms are made of a natural rubber latex and individually tested for contraception and STI protection. Their ultra-thin design and premium medical-grade silicone oil lubricant ensures a safe and without sacrificing sensation. I got a discreet little Lola subscription box in the mail, and guess what I did with it? I put all the products in glass jars and stationed them around my bathroom. Because Lola items come in this very chic, simple matte packaging so now when i have people over they'll feel encouraged to maybe take a condom or three um also when i have girlfriends over and they stay the night or whatever they have an array of safe feminine hygiene products to choose from your lola subscription is fully customizable you can choose your mix of products absorbency number of boxes and frequency of delivery lola subscription is super flexible you can also change skip or cancel your subscription at any time um also for every purchase lola will donate feminine care products to homeless shelters across the u.s and for 30% off your first month's subscription, visit mylola.com and enter smush when you subscribe. Beyonce said in that Rolling Stone interview, I was terrified and I didn't want to do it, but she said, come on, baby girl, get out there. Beyonce says, I remember walking out and I was scared. And when the music started, I don't know what happened, but I just changed. Both of her parents were on the audience and Tina recalls, we both said, who is that? At the end of her performance, she got a standing ovation and won the show. And I was like, oh, Lord, this is amazing. She says, so I never knew I wanted to be a singer. Um, she said, I think I knew before that, but I'd never been on stage before. Um, and it was at this point that Beyonce became like the little girl that you've seen for the past 20 years in these like VH1, you know, behind the music episodes and documentaries showcasing the talent show pageantry years of her life miss third ward if you will um and i also want to point out before we get into this any further that beyonce is the definition of the difference between a child introduced to the entertainment industry whose parents are supportive and present and in control and not banking on their 11 year old to like pay their fucking back taxes or mortgage you know, nobody's family is perfect, but like when it comes to the life of a child star, Beyonce was basically the human equivalent of a unicorn. And it shows in how her life panned out that she had this sort of like idealistic situation going into stardom. Um, and it was obviously Matthew Knowles who started entering Beyonce in these like local talent shows, which turned into regional shows, which led to these nationwide shows. Um, I think they said that she won 35, like 35 shows in a row, which is fucking insane. Um, and I also just want to point out with that being said, and this is alleged, but Beyonce was a fucking monster as a child. And you know that that's true. Like, let's just be 100% vulnerable, vulnerable right now for a second. Beyonce was a fucking demon child behind closed doors. She was the little girl that we all knew who would give the adults just like, sweet as gumdrops fantasy yes mamming everybody and curtsying about but as soon as the adults exited the room and firmly shut the door Beyonce was the girl that would very quickly become a monster and we all know this little girl like like before you know it you're being forced to like count trophies and like shine them with her um but it was at this point that Matthew Knowles formed a then unnamed group of girls including his daughter. The first time they performed together was at a local daycare. 
Beyonce said, I was nine the first time we performed together. We didn't even know the name of the group yet because I remember we were backstage. Well, not backstage, but in this little room on the side. And we were trying to write down names and logos. Uh, there were kids out there crying while we performed, but I realized how much I loved being in the group. Um, because I was always so nervous and shy, and to have these girls with me uh, before the stage, during the stage, and after the stage, we could just talk about it, and it was even more exciting for me. So, when it comes to Destiny's Child, the formation of the group, how they were managed, how they got their name, the reason the members came and went... There are so many versions of this story, and I'm going to try and do my best in telling the VH1 version that you all know, um, and then what I believe to be the real version that you may or may not know. <laughs> um, so when Beyonce was 10, the group became Girls Time, and originally consisted of six girls. So it was two sisters, Nikki and Nina, and then there was Latavia, Kelly, Tamar Davis, and Beyonce. Beyonce, of course, was positioned to be the leader of the group, and she was shown all these videos of Michael Jackson during the Jackson 5 years on how to, like, stand out amongst the girls, which, according to her daddy, she did naturally, of course. And the girls would spend hours and hours in the basement of Beyonce's mansion, like, practicing and doing, like, you know, vocal harmonies and choreography and breath control and all this crazy stuff, and they were like literally nine. Um, their lives revolved around being in a girl group, and they actually became really famous in Houston, like these little like child prodigies. And they would perform any and everywhere they possibly could, but mostly at Tina's salon. And I have to tell you, like I had this image in my mind while I was doing research for this episode. Um, of women, especially women like my mom, because I know, like, what kind of shit my mom talks in the car, and, like, just women being like, do I need to get my hair perm this week? Yes, I do. But do I feel like sitting through a bunch of girls' time performances and having Tina stare at me while I shake my head up and down, expecting me to, like, tip? Like, fuck. Like, I don't want to do this every week. Not every Saturday. You know what I mean? Um... Angela, I think her last name is pr pronounced Beyonce. It's literally where Beyonce's name comes from. It's a long story. I don't have time for it. But she was Beyonce's assistant and cousin. And she said the group became Beyonce's entire and uh, the entirety of her social life. All of her friends, basically her entire life have been uh, members of the group. And their first really, really big gig should come as absolutely no surprise to you at this point. It was none other than Egg McMahon's Star Search. They were the hip-hop rapping girls time. And they practiced for seven days a week, like 20 hours a day. The entire town of Houston was 100% certain that they were going to come back with a win. The girls were basically told like this was going to be their big break and that, you know, their families would need to, you know, position themselves and prepare themselves financially to possibly have to move to Hollywood because surely Hollywood will be calling, honey, after we win, after us hip-hop rapping girls win Star Search. They didn't plan on the fact that no group had ever rapped on Star Search before. And at that point, the show barely knew what rap was. So, you know, they sang this, like, original song that they had written themselves. 
that the audience didn't connect to at all. They were up against a group of these like 30 year old rockers called Skeleton Crew and they lost. And it was at this point that Matthew um, basically started a, he literally started a boot camp in his house that he uh, modeled after the way Motown trained their talent, where the girls had like around the clock artist development. It was, you know, for three months during the summer, five days per week. Matthew Knowles was no fucking joke, which we'll obviously delve a little bit deeper into in a little bit. Tina said Beyonce and whoever else was in the group at that point um, would start their mornings by jogging and singing. Uh, They had choreography lessons, vocal coaching, media training, and walking lessons from a model. And they watched lots of videos of the great performers, Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, Whitney Houston, Tina Turner, Madonna. We'd study those tapes like football teams study their, uh, their competitors' tapes. They had several possible record deals before... I think it was like for several years before they actually got signed. And then Matthew actually set up a showcase for them uh, for Electra Electra Records to view them, which is something that I've never seen in my life. This could be a very common thing, but it's new to me, um, where he had a stage. No, mind you, the executives are coming to watch these like nine-year-old girls perform, like in a yard or whatever. Matthew had a stage built a a stage professionally built to look like they had like some fucking concert hall in their yard in Beyonce's mansion. And they decorated the stage with photos of like all these other artists that they were inspired by. So people like boys to men and the Jackson five and TLC. And then it was next to these glamor shot photos of them. Like, you know, just like nineties black girl glamor shot photos, like of them holding their thighs And like kneeling down, like just really cute, like nine and 10 year old girl group photos um, while they performed for this record label. And this is where you can see a lot of the discrepancies start taking place in the story of Destiny's Child. Basically, it's the Knowles family versus everyone else. And obviously we will talk, but Beyonce's dad is a shady fucking, he is shady boots He is a shady character. Um, So when Beyonce turned 13, the band finally got signed to a label, but they immediately ended up getting dropped because of a discrepancy between one of their managers and the label, who for whatever reason didn't like the manager. It's some fucking record label logistics that I have no interest in keeping up with, but it's fascinating because it's one of the first times you can publicly see a very clear difference between Matthew like his version of a story and everyone else's so according to Matthew the label was having some sort of internal issues and Destiny's Child was a victim of the label's problems Um, and according to their former manager who has admitted this himself the label just hated him and they didn't want anything to do with him or anything associated with him So they dropped Destiny's Child as as soon as they found out that he was involved in it. And it just really hammers the narrative that they spent years and years experiencing, you know, all these major setbacks. But the craziest thing is that the Knowles family, specifically Matthew, was it was like every setback was something that made him want them to be famous more. So every time they got turned away 
every you know label issue that happened all of that just made him more driven to make his daughter the starlet that he believed she deserved to be this eventually led to him quitting his job with no guaranteed financial security at all so that he could study business and music management at a community college and then all of a sudden tina knowles who was used to like working at this salon and just like walking around and being cute all day now was like the breadwinner and the sole financial provider of her entire family she was their only source of income and she said him leaving his corporate job was very scary for me tina says i don't know how many people would give up a job like that making that kind of money i thought he had gone a little nuts and i was like what are we gonna do i had a large salon and it was generating good money but we were accustomed to incomes all of a sudden we had totally we had to totally alter our lifestyles and uh, according to Matthew, he realized very quickly that everything he had learned in corporate America taught him what he needed to know about running a music empire. He said, quite frankly, when I came into this, I was more qualified than 75% of the managers out there who have no business in background or who have no business background and don't know how to move inside a corporation. Coming from corporate America, I understand how to navigate through these political issues at the record label to have nothing to, that have nothing to do with music. He says the mechanics of selling high-level medical supplies is ultimately the same as selling his daughter to America. When you're a good salesperson, you're just a good salesperson. I mean, no lies detected. Um, now, now would be a really good time to inform you about a woman named Andretta Tillman. Andretta Tillman was a woman who had been with Destiny's Child since the the inception of this group. The group had always had several managers, even during the girls' time years, but Andretta was really the main person in charge. She was the one with all the creative ideas. She had a Rolodex of really powerful names in the industry that she was connected to already, so they had a foot in the door because of her. Um, she also had a lot of health issues and she's since passed away. I think she, she died. I want to say it was 1997, but according to Brian K. Moore, who was also one of their former managers, it was an easier story to present to the world that Matthew did everything himself. And so much so that he actually started to believe this lie, which was entirely untrue. So Brian K. Moore, who I mentioned just now, he wrote a book about this whole situation. Um, it's called The Andretta Tillman Story, and I believe they're doing a documentary about it called like Becoming Beyonce or something. And in his book, he basically claims that during the this like boot camp period, um, Matthew's addiction to cocaine was so bad that he was barely able to like even make it through one of their rehearsals. So even though like he was a tyrant and went around stomping his feet and demanding shit, he didn't really have anything to do with like the day to day when it came to this group of girls. Brian K. Moore said, um, or actually, so they, they said that before I even read this quote that Matthew would like be watching them for a couple minutes and then he would go to his garage and do a bunch of lines of coke and then come back and he thought that he had everybody fooled, like he didn't think anybody knew what he was doing, but everybody knew that he was out there getting high off his ass. 
So Brian said he would come back ranting and raving, yelling and carrying on, and would attend important meetings about the daughter, about the future of his daughter's career, absolutely high as a fucking kite. Um, and he also wrote in the book that the real reason for his, the parents um, splitting up was because uh, of his admitted sex addiction, which he actually recently spoke about, like as recent as he was on Wendy Williams recently and talked about it. Um, he allegedly cheated on Tina throughout the entirety of their marriage. And according to Brian, Tina even confronted the person who he was buying drugs from to try and get him to stop selling Matthew drugs because in Tina's mind, the drugs were the only reason he would cheat. Brian said, as those around the Knowles family began to notice his frequent drug induced rages, he only increased his drug use more wrote. It was getting out of control. He started lying even more to Tina and giving her the impression that there were meetings going on that weren't. And Matthew would use that as a cover for his extramarital affairs with different women. And an even more fucked up thing uh, mentioned in the book is that Tina Knowles basically tricked this woman into signing documents that would guarantee she would never see a dime from anything involving Destiny's Child. So I mentioned earlier that um, Andretta had some major health issues and before she died, she was in the hospital after suffering a major heart attack and kidney failure. So Brian tells the story of going to visit her and walking in on her propped up in bed with pillows and signing all these documents with Tina standing over her. And in the book, he says, after she finished, Andretta handed the documents back to Tina, who inserted them into a uh, manila envelope. She said, you really do look much better to me, Tina told her. I'll check on you later then. Uh, she said, God bless you. I love you. And she held Andretta's hand for a few moments before taking a leave. And uh, Brian and his wife asked Anne, like, you know, what did you just sign and why is she having you sign documents while you're in intensive care? Like, you just came out of an open heart surgery. Like, what the fuck is going on? And she responded and said that she was just signing some documents for Destiny's Child and then it wasn't a big deal, which is something that she was so used to doing. And he later um, found out that she had signed documents that made sure her kids wouldn't be privy to any of the earnings from Destiny's Child had she passed away. And I guess later um, she admitted that she knew what the documents were, but Tina promised her that it was just something that they needed to have in writing and that obviously they were family, so she would make sure that the boys would get something, which obviously never happened. And it's just fucking sad. Like this woman basically gave her, she actually gave her life to this group, everything that she had physically, creatively, financially went into making these girls stars and she got no credit for it because Matthew Knowles is an egotistical piece of shit. So her parents inevitably split up and went from living in this like Real Housewives of Houston style mansion to a two bedroom apartment and uh, they've since spun this into some story of like triumph where, you know, this is all happening because Matthew was so dead set on helping his baby girl follow her dreams and blah, blah, blah. Tina said, we got hit with some tax problems and everything kind of came crashing down. Tina says, we had to sell our house for way less than we could have gotten for it if we had time to sell it the right way. It was very emotional because my kids grew up in that house and they were not happy at all. 
They didn't know it was because Matthew had given up his job for them. You really didn't explain it. You just would say, listen, we have to scale down. So they ended up getting signed by Columbia, and ironically, Tina and Matthew got back together as soon as that happened. <laughs> LOL. Um, they also moved back into another larger house, a house that Matthew walked in and found the previous tenant in the bathroom dead from a suicide, for the record. Tina said, I felt like Matthew was obsessed and should go get a job. Um, so we... I'm sorry. So we separated for a few months, maybe six. The lowest point was when I moved out. I moved into an apartment. This is amazing. Her lowest point was moving into an apartment, which my kids had never lived in in their lives. That was extremely difficult for them. We were we were just miserable without each other because we'd been together forever. Um, both say they both say the reconciliation and record deal had nothing to do with one another. It was an exciting time, Tina says. It wasn't about the money. It was just that the we had finally gotten the chance to do what they wanted to do. Um, bullshit. Like, as soon as they get a record deal, she's like, well, we can maybe work it out. <laughs> yeah. I also love that the darkest time, <laughs> the darkest time in their lives was when they had to live in an apartment because they weren't used to that kind of living. Um in Beyonce's Driven documentary, Tina says that she came up with their name by scrolling through the Bible and seeing the word destiny. And it was later, and that's the story. Like a lot of people will tell you even to this day that that's how, that that's how Destiny's Child came to be. And it was later revealed that um, Andretta had a niece named Destiny. And Andretta originally wanted the name of the band to be Destiny when they were little girls, but uh, the group was already, like, there was already another girl group named Destiny that was, like, being shopped around. So they went with Girls Time, which she also came up with. And then later, when they changed it, they basically stole the name that Andretta came up with and added the word child onto it. But according to Tina, she uh, was scrolling through scripture and found the word. Um... So we're now at the point of the original four members of Destiny's Child uh, post them getting signed to a label. So Kelly Rowland, Beyonce, Latavia Robinson, huh? and Latoya Luckett. So after signing with Columbia, Destiny's Child basically skyrocketed as soon as they were introduced to the world. They released their self-titled album, in February of 1998, it sold over a million copies in the U.S. and went platinum. And the lead single, No, 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 reached number one on Billboard and had a guest spot from Wyclef John, which was a major deal in 1998. Um, and the crazy thing, so Matthew was really happy with the success of their debut album. But he's always said, even to this day, that he wasn't totally happy with the end result of the album itself. He thought that the sound was way too mature and that it didn't really represent who they were or who they were looking to be. And to be honest with you, looking back, I kind of 100% agree. Like their debut album was very like slow, really deep cut R&B. And it put them in this like neo soul category on Billboard, which is crazy. And it's pro probably also because Wyclef Jean was like writing for them. Um, so when they went back into the studio to record their follow up, Matthew hired an entirely new team of people um, to help them cultivate a more like youthful, fun, 
sort of boundary pushing sound. He hired Missy Elliott and Roddy Jerkins, Candy Burris, and all of these amazing like R&B pop producers and songwriters to help make writings on the wall. And the even bigger deal was that this record was Beyonce um, showing the world for the first time that she could write music, which is like wild. I mean, that's such a, a massive part of Beyonce's legacy. And this was the introduction of her as like a, a multi, a multifaceted artist. Um, she actually wrote or co-wrote a large portion of the album, um, like what ended up being chosen as the final tracks. And that was always the one thing that Beyonce had over so many other pop girls from this time, especially um, even more so with girls that were in like girl groups. Beyonce now had a writing credit to her name. And you couldn't say that about, you know, the girls from like 3LW or like fucking Eden's Crush or something. I don't know. Um, and that really helped to kind of legitimize why Beyonce was the lead of the group, not only because she had the best voice, that was very obvious, but, you know, they were, these were her songs, and, uh, it wasn't just because of her dad, allegedly, and I feel like it's safe to say that Writings on the Wall was, like, like, this was really the album that helped identify who Destiny's Child was, you know what I mean, as artists, like, their first album was amazing, and it was an amazing way to, like, kick the door down. But in my opinion, this was the album that really kind of helped them contribute to pop culture in, like, a massive way. And, like, I'm sorry, but I can honestly say that as a 31-year-old man, Bugaboo was a song that helped define a fucking decade. It really was. Like, Writings on the Wall is also now one of the best-selling R&B albums in history, and it did that, and it is that bitch. But just Bugaboo alone, like, I'll never forget. I actually remember the first time that I heard that song, and I heard AOL, and I heard things about email, and I thought, she wrote this for me. Like, this is, like, she wrote this for my generation. Um, going back and sort of immersing myself in this time... It made me realize that it was really only a matter of time before the press pounced on Destiny's Child. And whether it was like the girls leaving the group or whatever, they had all of the makings of a perfect sort of tabloid worthy story. Girl group drama is always something that's just like in vogue. You know what I mean? The press loves girl group drama. And then you factor in the fact that Beyonce's dad is the manager um, Beyonce got a ton, a ton of negative attention during this time. And people questioned whether or not, you know, she was being treated differently. You know, Destiny's Child had some pretty like legendarily awkward interviews during this beginning period of their careers because none of them were really like media trained yet. So Beyonce would just be like literally reading her sisters, the fucking house down without saying a word, just giving them the dirtiest looks. And, you know, the story told to us through the press was that, you know, two of the girls viciously went behind the backs of these band members and tried to get Matthew fired as their manager without running it by anyone. And that a heartbroken Beyonce, because I've read these articles, Beyonce, heartbroken, begged them not to commit such a selfish act. And, uh, you know, considering all Matthew had done to make these girls' dreams come true, how dare they, 
You know what I mean? And it wasn't for him. It was for them, you see. He's selfless. The realty was that Latavia and Latoya's parents had problems with Matthew from the jump. Latavia was told that she needed to sign Matthew's management contract on top of the one that they were getting from the label, which didn't make any sense and stood out as a, a major red flag. Um, and then Matthew basically bullied Beyonce and Kelly into pressuring the other girls to sign it, which they did kind of against their will. And I think Latavia did it without a parent even present. Um, so it was at this point that Beyonce's dad and cousins are like what makes up this entire team. Um, so Beyonce's living her absolute best. Kelly is basically a family member. She's living in their house. And the other girls are chopped liver. The group also found out that Matthew Knowles was pocketing a massive portion of their money. And it got so bad that Latoya and Latavia weren't able to even do simple things like pay their cell phone bill or buy their parents groceries because they had no money while Beyonce and Kelly were buying matching Jaguars. <laughs> and uh, the group became 100% divided. Beyonce was put in the middle in this very awkward position of uh, playing the middleman between her like group members and her dad and all her cousins um, while her dad is causing all this turmoil. And then you have the issue of dating. So Latavia and Latoya were both dating uh, members of Jagged Edge, the 90s R&B group, which was something that Beyonce and her dad definitely did not approve of. So uh, they claimed that it made them lose focus and that, you know, you know, Jagged Edge was like getting in their heads and turning them against the group. Um, and Jagged Edge was also on tour at the time with Destiny's Child. So it was just a fucking mess. Um, it got so bad that Matthew banned LaToya's mom from being on the tour bus with them um, because basically she wanted her mom there because she wanted somebody in her corner to make her feel like her voice was being heard. Matthew didn't like that. He didn't like that this woman was making him feel... Like, his authority was being questioned, so he banned her from being on the bus. And then, like, the guys from Jagged Edge were like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You're not going to kick somebody's mom off of a tour bus? Like, you're insane. It was just, it was a, a, a ratchet fucking mess. Latavia and Latoya tried to speak to lawyers about, you know, another manager being brought in. And at the same time, Matthew had already moved forward with replacing them without telling them so they literally didn't know that they had been replaced until they saw that a music video for Say My Name was being filmed without them in it with their replacements. Um, and the really fucked up thing is that they weren't even trying to get Matthew fired, which also became the narrative. Like Beyonce and her, her family um, told the press that, you know, they couldn't believe that their dad who started this group and came up with the idea was now in the position of possibly losing all of it because these two girls, blah, 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 when really they just wanted another manager because they wanted somebody who wasn't a in Beyonce's bloodline, like, which is not really that far off, you know what I mean? And also they, like I'd mentioned a million times, they had had several managers at a time throughout their entire career. So in their eyes, it was like, 
this shouldn't be a big deal to just get another person here. You've had like nine managers so far. Um, Latavia Robertson said in a 2018 interview with Dazed, my issue was always with the management and never with the girls. Um, there was a letter that Latoya and myself sent out and we were supposed to have a meeting and there were just some things that we, that I had started to notice and I asked questions about that I can't go into, that I can't go into specifics about. We just needed a business manager to come in and be, and be with Mr. Knowles. Uh, we never tried to fire him as the group's manager, like the media said, because we didn't have the power to do that. Uh, my mom was employed by Music World Entertainment, and I actually went behind my mother's back and got an attorney because there were just things that I started to see. And I was thinking, okay, I'm young, but I'm not dumb. I wasn't born last night. I had to take things into my own hands at that point. My mother was not happy about what I had done when I did it. But the simple fact that this man, Matthew Knowles, has now been fired by everybody that he's managed, clearly, I didn't do what I did in vain. Kelly fired him, Michelle fired him, and then his own daughter fired him. So I think that I just got a heads up earlier because I was going to be replaced anyway. So I do still feel pretty great about my decision. This is one of my favorite things in the entire world. Uh, Beyonce and Kelly Rowland wrote an open letter to these girls in Vibe magazine I don't know if you guys have ever heard this or seen it or read it or if you've maybe forgotten that it existed, but really, really sink your body deep, deep into your couch or car seat or whatever. This later letter is dated January 17th of the year 2000. She said, I have shared some of the best moments in my life with the two of you by my side. I've also shared some of the worst. I never complained when you didn't sing one note on numerous songs on the album. I never complained when I was working my butt off in the studio, as I did on the last album, and the two of you were both either sleeping or on your phones approximately 80% of the time. I never complained when you two were lip-syncing to my vocals on some of the videos and on stage. In fact, I only helped to make our con your contributions appear to be equal to the public. This is my favorite part. Approximately every three weeks or less, there is drama caused by one or both of you. I love the mathematics. Approximately every three weeks you cause drama. And it has been this way at least the past two years. And I don't deserve this. And Kelly wrote, I think it's so funny how every time uh, there is something good going on with Destiny's Child, one of you will spring something on Beyonce and me. Before I could forgive and forget and move on, uh, but I had to, ref but now I refuse to be ran over and receive punches from y'all. Y'all have taught me not to take crap from anyone and to watch my own back. Obviously, I'm obsessed. I mean, obviously, Beyonce's approximately's have not gone unnoticed. I wonder if Beyonce still uses approximately so often when she reads people now. You have caused approximately 80% of drama. Like, what? <laughs> Oh my God, I love it. And then of course, Tina Knowles chimed in and said exactly what you would expect her to say, that the girls were jealous and that, you know, we gave them an inch, they took a mile and that they were nothing but drama, blah, blah, blah. So Latoya responded to the open letter and said that she and Latavia uh, were anything but lazy and that she wishes they could stand in court with their hands on a Bible to see who was telling the truth. 
She also mentioned that she would get kicked out of the group all the time if she said or did or wore the wrong thing. Um, <clears throat> and that, you know, Matthew would then call her immediately and say, you know, I need you. Please show up. Please don't do this to us. You'll be letting the girls down if you don't show up. So he'd kick her out and then bully her into joining the group again. And to add insult to injury, Matthew obtained the trademark for the name Destiny's Child, even though the group was put together and named by a dead woman. Oh, God. And we also cannot be in the middle of this conversation and not really hammer in the fact that Beyonce and Kelly were now America's public enemies number one and two in this country. This debacle, I mean, like, it's amazing to me that at any point in our media cycle, we talked about Beyonce, who is now untouchable in the, in the way that we used to fucking disrespect her. It's insane. They were ripped apart by the press. And um, they actually went on a press tour specifically to explain their thought process behind this whole thing. In one of my all-time favorite Wendy Williams interviews during her radio days, um, it was with Destiny's Child, and I love it because they're all just being so shady to one another, and Wendy keeps calling them Beyonce and the girls. She, like, refuses to acknowledge the rest of them, um, to which Beyonce will then stop her and ask her several times if she can refer to them as Destiny's Child because they're not called Beyonce and the girls. Um, she asked Beyonce if she still has the Jaguar and Beyonce claims that they all got the exact same amount of money and that buying a Jaguar is just what she chose to do with hers. Um, she also says that she's super excited because for the first time, and this is the first time she said this, but she went on to say it like eight different times. She's very excited because for the first time, all of the girls in the group can actually sing. <laughs> what a blessing. We've now reached the Michelle and Farah era of the band. Um, the band's choreographer, Junella, knew Michelle because Michelle was a dancer. And Farah was actually in the background of the video for Bills, Bills, Bills. I think she was just a model. Um, she was pretty enough and available. So they were like, hey, do you want to be in Destiny's Child? Um, when Michelle and Farah got the call, they were told um, it's either a yes or no. And if it's a yes, then you fly here tomorrow because we need you to film the music video for Say My Name. So Michelle, whose actually first name is Tanitra, was told that she needed to go by her middle name because it was less ghetto. And then Farah was asked to lose weight, dye her hair red to differentiate herself from Beyonce, and start tanning a lot because Matthew wanted Beyonce to be the lightest skinned girl in the group. Farah also admitted that Beyonce was the only one in the group who was not forced to tan. So Kelly, Michelle, and Farah were forced constantly to sit in tanning beds to make themselves darker so that Beyonce could be the most light-skinned and beautiful gal in the bunch. 
Michelle and Farrah were asked to lip sync to previous members' vocals while Beyonce sang live. And even though Farrah, I'm sorry, Michelle seemed to get along with the girls, um, Beyonce's family and her management did not like Farrah. They just, it didn't work. Um, she was constantly being criticized by Matthew and uh, has consistently said in interviews since this time that, you know, the way that she was treated was completely inappropriate for an 18 year old girl and that it was not you know the way that you would expect somebody to treat somebody else's child um it's also worth mentioning that Farah, in fact could not sing she was a model she wasn't a singer or a dancer so they had to teach her how to sing which they i, I guess couldn't and um there's actually a separate interview of her on wendy williams during her radio days where Wendy makes her sing a cappella, and it is really brutal. It's really, really bad. Um, Farrah was also unaware before joining the group that Beyonce and Kelly were not allowed to take days off. That was just, like, not a thing. They worked pretty much every single day of the year through sickness and in health, and during one very infamous moment that was covered um, very heavily by the press, Farah was hospitalized for exhaustion and dehydration, um, to which Matthew asked her to leave the hospital, which she did, and fly to wherever they were going to perform. Um, and this all takes place on an episode of MTV's Diary. Insane. Uh, Farah later admitted that she was screamed at by Matthew to the point that it made her want to leave the group. Um, she lasted in Destiny's Child for approximately, um, approximately, as Beyonce would say, five months. And the girls begged her to stay. Um, and the management contacted her and, you know, begged her as well, but she refused. And uh, at that point, they were told that they were no longer allowed to communicate with her. They excommunicated her and uh, they never really heard from her or she never heard from them again. And this was the official start of Destiny's Child really becoming like a punchline. They were the most overindulged joke of the fucking decade. And their spin on this departure was that she couldn't handle it and that she was distant and that she wasn't cut out to, you know, perform the amount of work that they were used to. And here's the thing, unless you're old enough to have lived through this time period, there's no way really to explain what it felt like. It was so public. And as hard as they tried to keep all this information under wraps, the former members were more than happy to expose all of the band's secrets. And the former members were more than happy to also engage in public fights back and forth for like weeks. I mean, it was amazing. It was an amazing time to be alive. Um, and I mean, Beyonce was also so rough around the edges at this point that she couldn't help but throw ample amounts of shade at these girls during interviews, especially considering it was the only thing people would ask them about. Basically, uh, Beyonce was the most hated woman in the entire country, and the group had so many eyes on them at this point that all of this negative press actually turned into people just being so excited for like what was to come next. Um, Beyonce and Kelly were honest with the press about the fact that they had not been happy with the status of the group for several years, 
and that Michelle was the only person who came in and felt like a natural fit. Um, you know, that all the girls were in a very deep, dark depression. They weren't eating. Um, Kelly also said that she had a bit of a nervous breakdown and, you know, that she didn't leave her room for several weeks. And the narrative had really become that Beyonce was this truly evil, blood-sucking diva whose daddy was running around trying to you know, meet her diva demands and plowing through anybody he needed to, to make his little girl happy. Um, and then, uh, the one thing that each girl who left Destiny's Child stuck to was in fact that like, they never had issues with the other girls. Even now they say that, like it wasn't the other girls that we had problems with. It was her dad. And they also all found out collectively later that her dad was putting things in their ear and sort of, you know, giving them false information to turn them against each other. So if there was one member of the group that he was annoyed with, he would tell all the other girls all this stuff and say like, you know, but don't say anything. So then they would be very passive aggressive towards that girl, just really like carrying on. You know what I mean? Um... But I think it's undeniable that Beyonce or that uh, Destiny's Child was meant to be a threesome, right? Like it just for some reason felt like one once that happened and once they were three, everything made sense. It was like we all collectively knew that this was it. Like this is it. No, nobody's going to leave now. This is it. They found their thing and a rickety, you know, knee clanking Michelle was the thing that they needed to for this to all work out um when they went into the studio to record Survivor Beyonce stated that she really only had interest in writing a few songs and apparently the label allegedly loved what she was doing so much that they kept contacting them back and saying we need more we need more so Beyonce is on this album as a writer for all 18 songs um, she also produced for the first time. So she is on the album as a writer and producer. And when she wrote the song Survivor, it was inspired by a radio station making a joke about who will be kicked off of the Destiny's Child Island next. So she also claimed to write and come up with the term Bootylicious, which was later disputed by a producer named Rob Fusari, who said that he had the idea of using the Fleetwood Mac guitar riff and this is fascinating because it's the first of many, many times other artists and producers and choreographers and songwriters um, for many, many years to come would say that Beyonce and her dad would just like steal ideas and then claim them as their own. And this is something that kind of still follows her around. It still happens occasionally. Um... Whereas, like, there are moments where it's obvious that Beyonce was inspired by something, but then she'll not give credit to what she was inspired by, where, like, it would just be so much easier to say, yeah, like, this is a blatant copy of this other thing, um, and I just liked it. You know what I mean? Um, Rob said, Matthew explained to me that people don't want to hear about Rob Fusari, producer from Livingston, Livingston, New Jersey. No offense, but that's not what sells records. What sells records is people believing that the artist is everything. And I'm like, yeah, I know, Matthew. I understand the game, but come on. I'm a squirrel trying to get a nut, too. Um, 
so I, I truthfully no shade, but I can't imagine how many, I mean, for Beyonce to be on a, a writer and producer on every single song, I feel like, if you really want my honest opinion, I feel like at this particular point, the group worked because, I just said group weird, like Monique, the group, the group worked because Kelly was so passive and submissive. What the hell was she ever going to say to like fight back? And then Michelle was just happy to be there. I think Michelle knew the whole time that she was hanging on by an actual thread. And uh, there was nobody to combat Beyonce and her dad's egos. Farah has said, and other people have said, and this is a common knowledge thing, that she was really uncomfortable not being the leader of this group. And a lot of the discrepancy that happened between them was her just kind of like, trying to be a little bit more in charge and not just be somebody that like follows what everybody else is saying to do. Um, so they had like their perfect team of like Beyonce and these two submissive girls. And look, Survivor is for me, Destiny's Child's career defining album. Like you had independent women from the Charlie's Angels soundtrack. You had Survivor, you had Bootylicious and Emotion. To me, the best Emotion is like the premier Destiny's Child song. It's the greatest song of their entire catalog. Um, Nasty Girl. Like this was, this album was fucking huge. And Dan Workman, um, who was the engineer on all of Destiny's Child's albums said, there was a sense that the stakes were raised when we were doing this album um, in comparison to Writings on the Wall. And it became really obvious to me that the heavy lifting was going to be done by Beyonce and that Kelly Rowland was the closer. The other girls who left the group were not as talented and were not as involved in the creative process. When Michelle came, it uh, it was never re- it was never directly spoken about other than like Destiny's Child is now a, a trio. There was no in-depth discussion about Michelle's contribution. And I 100% believe that to be true. Like I've read things about how during this time Beyonce was she wanted her hand to be involved in everything. She wanted her hand in every pot. She wanted to know how the stage was being set up and she wanted to know how they built it and the people who controlled the sound and the mixing. And she wanted to learn how to produce. Like she really, really, really had interest in knowing every single possible facet of the music industry. And I think that that's really obvious in who she is now. Um, I mean, yeah, like the the Beyonce that we know today, of course I picture them sitting in that room and I I believe that she was right, that they were probably all sitting on their fucking cell phones. I don't know what you do on a cell phone in in 1998, like, I don't know, play Snake or whatever, but they're all sitting on their phones and playing gin rummy and she's like learning how to produce and learning how to write and, you know doing vocals for people and letting them use her vocals. Like, I believe all of that to be true. Um, it's also worth mentioning that this was like the absolute peak of MTV's like music video generation and Destiny's Child was, you know, contributing to pop culture in such a crazy way, like just such a massive, massive way. All of their singles up to this point had really, really heavy music video rotation but the Survivor album was like on an entirely different scale. And I think that this is where I'm going to cut this off. 
And next week, we're going to talk about Jay-Z. And uh, I'm excited. This actually, I'm really excited about this. Obviously, we haven't gotten to, like, the true meat and potatoes of the episode yet. But, like, now I'm in it and I'm immersed and I've watched so much Beyonce shit. There is nothing more joyous than going back and watching old interviews of Beyonce Knowles. It is such a beautiful fucking experience. Not only because Destiny's Child was just giving us fucking bop after bop after bop for several years, but like, I'll say it again and I'll probably say it a million times. It's, I miss Beyonce. Like, we'll get more into this later on because we're still in this time period of Beyonce being like a human person, but I miss Beyonce. And it's the thing that I wish more people would be upset about. I miss her being a human person. Like, I miss her going on fucking Jimmy Fallon to perform Countdown. And it wasn't even that long ago that we lost Beyonce as, like, a human. You know what I mean? Like, now she only speaks through, like, riddles. And she's just, like, this entity that isn't a human being. She's, like, Captain Planet or something. Like, she's not of this world. But I I just miss... I miss unfiltered interview Beyonce. I miss Beyonce talking to Oprah. You know what I mean? I miss her giving shady interviews and being funny. And I miss seeing her giggle. And I'm not talking about like watching a Netflix special. Like I don't want to have to watch a single special once per year to see Beyonce speak. I just don't. You know what I mean? But I don't know. We'll get more into it. That's I'm jumping way too far ahead. I my throat hurts really bad right now. So I want to stop recording but I don't want to stop loving you. I love you very, very much. Thank you for sitting through this with me. Um, I'm happy that we're finally doing it. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that I'm giving this episode the justice that it deserves. And I will see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to this mushroom an emotionally broken psychos, Patreon exclusive. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. Also, be sure to head over to patreon.com slash ebpsychos for more information on this show and other Patreon-exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McEady. That's T-R-O-Y-M-C-E-A-D-Y. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.